Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the seventh episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Today's topic is Harnessing the Power of Perceptions. With me is Emily Balsitas, author of Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World. The book is published by Ballantine Books. Emily Balsitas is an associate professor of psychology at New York University. She received her PhD from Cornell University and has authored over 70 scientific publications in addition to being a TED speaker. Hopefully I didn't butcher the pronunciation of your last name. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thanks for having me. Uh, and actually, my last name is Balchettis. Balchettis. Okay. My apologies. I, That's I okay. We didn't a- cover that yesterday, and I didn't even think to bring it up myself. And that was my error. I should have brought it up. So uh, to begin, why don't you give us just a brief summary of what the book is about, including a uh, explanation description of the, the title and how you got to that title. Sure. The book is 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 trying to offer people tools that they can add to their own tool belt or their own tu- toolbox to help them better accomplish the goals that they've set for themselves. Now, what really inspired the book was um, was the f- was probably my own inadequacy at making good on the things that I set out to do, and and then and I'm a social psychologist, so I was a little bit dismayed that I couldn't figure out how to how to better motivate myself. So I turned to the literature. And what I noticed is that I'm not alone, first of all, and I bet many of your listeners will probably resonate with at least some of what I'm saying today. But the problem isn't that people don't care. We're setting goals all the time. But the problem really lies in what people are doing to try to meet their goals. We're working really hard, but we're oftentimes using the wrong strategies. So this book tries to offer some additional tools that we might use, we might try out in different circumstances to see if they can help us overcome some of the challenges that we maybe routinely face or maybe infrequently uh, experience, but that have big consequences for the things that we're trying to accomplish. So the title, Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World, really encapsulates um, the four strategies that I offer and then apply to all kinds of goals in many different kinds of contexts. These four strategies all come down to one, one power, one power that we may not realize we even have at our disposal, and that's the power of sight, of our visual experiences. In the research that I've done in my lab, what we're discovering is that how people are looking at the world, what they're doing with their eyes in conjunction with their brains are having a big impact on their ability to accomplish what they've set out to. And that's really what inspired the book. Okay. Well, I, I the reason I chose the book is I think vision is so important. And when you think about how the brain you know, essentially evolved uh, our ability to see and all of our perceptual abilities, sensory abilities, and our emotional response to them is so intimately tied. And I certainly think, speaking both literally and metaphorically, our ability to make progress in life 
depends on getting past the blind spots uh, that we all have. So speaking of perceptual shifts, uh, you mentioned in the book at one point that there was at least, I believe, eight drafts to the book. I have to imagine the book went through some perceptual shifts and changes of its own. Can you say to me what, uh, or explain to us what uh, changed about the book, how it evolved over time? Well, sure. Those eight drafts were definitely an experience in humility for me. I thought I had something to say. And as I thought about it more and got more uh, feedback from the editors and the agents that were involved in this book, I realized that I still had so much to learn about how to communicate a message. And and I think that was a really great experience for, for me to pick up on. And, and it was an opportunity for me then to apply the tactics that I was describing in the book to my own attempts at revamping and, and retooling and reformulating what my message would be in that book. And really from the first to the eighth or ninth draft, however many happened before the final product, what changed was that it became much more concrete. It became much more applicable to everyday life situations. And it offered more of my own experience in there, highlighting the fact that that some of these techniques will work for some people and not work for others. And they may work in some situations better than in other ones. And, and so that's what got added to the book was this appreciation and understanding that there's you know, no one right strategy for the job and that there will be no single prescription that I could write as a doctor to solve people's problems with, with goal setting and with accomplishing what they set out to. The challenges are multifaceted and what can best help in those circumstances when we find ourselves challenged and, and feeling, um, and feeling like we don't know how to move forward is trying something else. And that's, and that's the tone that the book takes. And as a result, what you see is a variety of strategies under different circumstances that a reader might consider adopting. Okay. And I, you know, being an author myself and having gone through the Brown University Creative Writing Program, we used to have a saying, uh, you know, the poem is really making progress when you take out your favorite line, which just doesn't work in that poem. Is, was there something that also went out of the book to help it make progress? Oh, definitely. There are things that, that I feel um, excited to share with the world that didn't make it into this final copy. And again, those have to do with things that maybe people won't experience um, in their everyday life. Um, uh, goals that we have perhaps to be fair and just. If we find ourselves sitting on, on a jury um, in a trial, for instance, we we have the lofty goal of being fair and being unbiased in our decisions. And yet some of the ways that we um, consider evidence in a case um, might thwart our attempts at fairness. Now, I think in this day and age, as we're talking about social justice causes and concerns, and those are on the forefront of people's minds right now, I think that's a very important message um, and and has concrete advice for people who might find themselves on a jury. But that's not something that got to stay in the book because it, it might be only you know once in a lifetime when people might have an opportunity to apply that insight. Okay, makes sense. Let's let's move fairly specific now because the book has four uh, general strategies, and if I uh, take it right, maybe I'm taking liberties. Uh, two of them, narrowing our focus, and also managing to have a kind of a what you call a wide bracket seem to me to form kind of a natural, though potentially contrasting pair. And then you also have materializing a, go, 
a goal rather, and the power of framing, which seemed to to me to be kind of a natural reinforcing pair of strategies. Am I wrong? How, how do you see these four strategies? What more can you kind of tell us about them to get listeners oriented? Sure. I think those those are exactly the four that I offer. Um, and you're right that a narrow focus and a wide bracket seem like complementary suggestions. There are circumstances when sort of putting on blinders to the distractions along the periphery, quite literally what's in our visual periphery, but also sort of cognitively, the things that are sort of nagging at us but are not core to what it is that we're working on right now. Knowing when to put those aside and being able to focus on the goal when is that effective for maintaining progress? Now, it might seem like always. That's always a good thing. If I'm trying to get something done, I should just focus on it. But if we use that all the time, it actually might be demotivating. Now, for instance, if you're at the beginning of a really long project, something big, and maybe that is going to take a few months at best to accomplish, if we keep our eyes narrowly focused and our minds trained on just that goal, it's going to be exhausting and we may not be able to sustain our, our yeah. pursuit of it in the long run. So that's a suggestion where uh, that's an instance um, where instead perhaps a wide bracket might be effective to sort of zoom out <laughs> to look at the bigger picture um, and to be aware of perhaps multiple possibilities, multiple paths forward. This is also effective when we find ourselves stuck or if we're wondering whether um, this in fact is the right pursuit for us. Is this the right way for us to accomplish our goal? We may wonder at times. And the answer might be no. And if we find ourselves saying no, well, that might be scary, right? Because we've already invested. We've tried so hard. We've um, put put effort towards following this path to accomplish our goal. And if we sort of self-diagnose and determine that like, oh, this may have been a mistake, it can be really hard for us psychologically to let go of that. But by taking a wide bracket and realizing that, you know, stepping a few steps to the right, few steps to the left, metaphorically, can actually still get us to the same end point. It's not so hard then to let go of what we've already invested in. But in order to do that, we might need to, you know, look at the forest rather than the trees to find a new path through it. Sure. Or acknowledge that there's some sunk costs and we're just going to have to live with that. Exactly. Yeah. And that's very psychologically challenging for people to do. Now, the okay. other two you mentioned um, are the, the framing suggestion. By framing, I'm talking about quite literally what we what we put in front of our eyes, where we direct our visual attention. And that can have great power. I mean, if we take examples of dieting or trying to maintain a, a, a healthy lifestyle, quite literally what we see is what we eat. So an effective strategy then that calls upon framing is put fruit or vegetables out in your fruit bowl and make the un unhealthy junk foods a little bit harder to reach. Put them on a higher up shelf, hide them behind something that is uh, an option that better aligns with what you're trying to eat more of. Uh, and sort of, you know, visually mask um, the thing that you would like to do less of. Now, this also goes for exercise. We can leave ourselves sure. visual cues, in a sense, to help encourage the actions that, that we'd like to do more of. We could, rather than leaving our slippers at the foot of the bed, we could leave our running shoes, for example. So when we wake up in the morning, it's a reminder of something that we've decided we'd like to accomplish for the day. 
Yeah, well, I admit in my case, I'm very visually oriented, so I need to have my the things I'm working on uh, around me on the desk. And fortunately, I have a lot of desk space because the thing that goes in the file I will not pay attention to, and I'm a multitasker. I, it's really rare that I have two or three things I'm working on in a day. It's more like six, seven, ten things that I'm hoping to get done. I mm-hmm. probably can't get to all of them, but I do try. Earlier, I had sent you Plutchik's Wheel of Emotions. You are a psych professor after all. I'd be curious as we move through these four strategies, if you think there is an emotion that maybe most pertains per strategy. So let's start with narrow our focus. Is there an emotion that you think might be most uh, you know, apropos regarding that particular strategy and enacting it? Well, to me, the first idea that comes to mind is energization. When we narrow our focus, we energize ourselves for for that thing that we've focused our attention on. When we've narrowed our focus, it, it literally looks closer to us, some of our research suggests. And that increases our beliefs that things are feasible, um, that it's possible for us to accomplish it, that it's in it's it's within arm's reach, and that can be energizing. Um, and, and that can be great when we need a little boost to help us push us over the finish line, but it also can be tiring if we've done that too early or too often. Okay. And I would, I would jump in, in terms of energizing an emotion that is certainly energizing is anger. And and I think of anger because it's an approach emotion. I'm trying to move through barriers. I'm trying to accomplish things, be in control of my own destiny. And as a facial coder, when I think about anger, you know, many of the ways it signals on the face, in fact, the features are narrowing. The eyebrows knit together and lower forever. For instance, the lips pursed together. There is a almost a literal narrowing of the face in some ways uh, when we feel anger. Moving on to materializing a goal. What, what emotion or emotions might uh, be appropriate there, pertinent sure. there? Sure. When we talk about materializing, what I, what I mean is quite literally creating a visualization of what it is that you want to accomplish. We do the things that we put into our calendar, for instance, and we have a harder time doing the things that we just leave in our mind um, as as activities that we'll get to when time allows or when there's a break in our schedule. So by quite literally materializing, making a concrete manifestation of, of something that's relevant to what we want to accomplish, we're more likely to do it. So let's see, an emotion that might pertain to materializing, um, oh, maybe commitment isn't, isn't an emotion, I know, but um, I'm not sure. What, which one? What, what about, what about happiness? I think, I mean, I agree that happiness is relevant here because if it's something that's important to us and we have found uh, that materializing is is something that we can do, it it increases the efficiency of our day um, and increases the likelihood we get what we want done. So I, I do think happiness would work. Well, I, I thought of it because it's it's the other approach emotion along with anger. And if I'm trying to get to a goal, I need to embrace it, <laughs> which is what happiness is is about. Uh, but it also has a bit of a blue sky quality to it, which is nice when I'm trying to map out where this thing's going to be headed. Mm-hmm. How about the power of framing? That's interesting. What what would jog to your mind? Well, I admit it was sadness, um, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But can you play with that? Do you do you see any ways in which I might have chosen sadness? Hmm. 
I think framing can evoke sadness. I see where you're going with that. When uh, we have a natural propensity as people to orient towards things that are negative, this idea of negativity dominance is something that social scientists um, have studied for a long time. For example, if we see a sea of faces, maybe we're standing in front of an audience to deliver a toast, our eyes almost naturally orient toward the people that have um, maybe a negative expression or maybe a grimace of some sort. And we don't linger as long. It's not our natural inclination to focus on or to frame up those people who are smiling or nodding their head. So that idea of negativity dominance, that the bad looms larger in our mind, in our mind's eye, than the good does could be an uh, an, un, an unfortunate consequence of the way that our brains are built and would be relevant to framing. What we frame up naturally is something that's negative, which could lead to sadness. But if we know that, if we know that about ourselves and we realize that we do have the power to reframe what's in our visual field, I think we can overcome that sadness as well. That's basically why I chose it. I, I thought sadness can be a very successful, empathetic emotion. And when I was reading, and it was one of the most interesting sections of the book to me, was about also having to allow for context. I'm trying to make progress. You know, it's all about being successful and getting to my goals and being effective and efficient. But I think strangely, at times, it's actually good to go faster by going slower. And what I mean by that is you got to bring people on board. Uh, we've just been having on... Uh, on TV, the the last dance about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And Jordan realized that if he's going to be successful, he had to bring his teammates along. And it's fairly rare that we're going to be after a goal where we don't have to bring other people with us or accommodate or understand where they're coming from. And I think sadness, one of the powers of sadness is it does slow us down, often physically, intellectually even, and makes us ponder a situation. And I think being too effective can actually make us less efficient in, in a manner of speaking. I agree. How about wide bracket? That's a, that's the last of ours. To me, what comes to mind is the idea of calm. That with a wide bracket, we're seeing more opportunities than we might otherwise. And again, that can be freeing. It can provide a, a sense of multiple opportunities and and. Um, alternatives that we might be in need of. And that can be quite calming to know that there's more than one path to happiness and success. Okay. Well, I I do agree with you. Calming is good. Um, I admit in this case, I actually chose two different emotions that are quite related to how they, they show in the face and also how they interplay. And that was surprise and fear. And the reason why I chose surprise is because so often the face goes wider, the eyes go wider, for instance, and curiosity, the ability to take that wider bracket and see alternatives and opportunities. The reason I took fear is not just because we show fear almost in the same way we show surprise in the face because we don't generally welcome surprises, but also because in that part of the book, you're talking a good deal about, you know, there might be detours and maybe those detours are helpful to us. Uh, they can enrich our, our way of seeing this, and maybe get to a, a better solution. Uh, but it's also, of course, a possibility that there's simply dead ends, and we've got to be alert to that. And, and that's why I chose those two. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, or you're going to stay with calm alone, which can also make sense, but just curious. No, 
I like, yeah, I like those ideas. And I think what that highlights, this was a fun exercise, by the way. Thank you. I think what it highlights is that, that these techniques are effective for different reasons in different circumstances. So they're not necessarily a one-to-one correspondence with a particular emotion or a particular situation. But again, they are just additional offerings that we have and, and tools that people might try out to see how they affect them within a particular situation and to see if it's adaptive and helpful. Okay. So in your book, you mentioned in the, in the uh, introduction that you've put in 15 plus years now of work on uh, research related to perception and motivation. Uh, here's a softball question for, I guess, of those 15 years and all that, re- all those research projects, is there one that's a particular favorite of yours? Quite possibly it's in the book. Uh, and, and what did you find out and, and why was it a favorite? Oh, I oh, that's like asking which of your children is your favorite child. It's a it very is, it is. I confess. <laughs> it's that um, I I feel like as a parent myself, I should not answer your question, and as a scientist, I should fall in line too and not pick a favorite. But I do I do have one that I feel um, really was the inspiration for this book in the first place. A, a line of research that that I felt particularly compelled to share with a broad audience, and that has to do with the power of of narrow focus and its effects when exercising. Now, I had an opportunity to work with um, a really accomplished group of, of runners, and I found them in the most unexpected of places. They were at this, you know, sort of uh, at a YMCA in an old armory building in the, in the middle of Brooklyn. And they were, this team was, or this club was sitting on the floor of this old rubber gym and stretching. There were some people that, you know, looked to be in there, maybe their 20s or their early 30s, some high schoolers, some middle schoolers, and they were all sitting together doing exactly the same thing. So besides age, it would have been a challenge for me to pick out the fact that some of them actually were Olympic athletes. Some of them had won gold medals, in fact, for being the fastest person in a particular event in the entire world. Many of them, in fact, had medaled in the Olympics. They were all so humble and they were all just doing exactly the same thing. But what I did in this circumstance was ask them to describe the strategies that they use when they're running and what motivates them, what helps them cross over the finish line. Now, in this sort of descriptive survey that we put forward, what we found out was that those people who were most accomplished within this club were ones that had used a narrow focus of attention, especially when they're trying to cross the finish line, that they, you know, in a sense, put on blinders and were, were not aware of what was happening on the periphery. Now, that might seem intuitive, and maybe that's something that some runners that are listening already use, but it might also be counterintuitive because you can imagine you're in a competition, and being aware of where your competition is is also important, knowing how far ahead or how close on your heels they are um, would be quite key to, to knowing how much you need to double down, and that's not something that they reported doing. Now, of course, these are really amazing athletes, and this is a strategy that they use. But what we wondered was, is this a strategy that we can teach to other people, not those that are trying to make it to the Olympics, but just people like me, like my mother, like my sister, like my husband, who are just trying to stay and maintain a healthy lifestyle? Could this help improve the quality of their own exercise? So we designed some uh, instructions about how to use the strategy that these professional athletes were also using. We encourage people to to choose a goal. That might be the stop sign at the end of a of a corner three blocks ahead. It might be a, a big tree at the end of the park that you're trying to race to. 
and to focus their attention as if a spotlight were shining just on that target and to maintain that focus until they hit it. And then maybe reset the goal, find a new mark and, and do the same thing and repeat that. Now, what we found when we tested this in the lab was that, first of all, people could do it, and it didn't require much, much more effort. It didn't cost anything, and it, um, it was just a new way of training their eyes. When we actually measured, well, how did they do on an exercise task? How fast could they run? How fast could they walk? What we found was that, in fact, they walked 23% faster. The distance was wow. the same. We controlled wow, that in the lab. But we ha- by, by narrowing their focus of attention, they moved 23% faster and said that it, it didn't hurt as much. They said it required 17% less exertion. So that was really exciting to us because it meant that this strategy was producing more efficient exercise that wasn't as physiologically costly. They're telling us that it wasn't as bad as, as, as it otherwise might be. And that can be really motivating. If you did it better and it didn't hurt as much, Probably you want to try it again. And in fact, yeah, no, that's those, awesome. those are big. Those are big numbers. Uh, absolutely, I, I know in business one of the things that helps motivate a team is to think in terms of a rival. Uh, it could be an internal rival that's competing with another department, but it also could be external competitors uh, in the business landscape. And, and it really does help you focus and trying to overcome them. Uh, I, I did definitely notice this example or this re- you know research outcome in your book. Maybe in part because I tried cross country running as a boy, and uh, I, I think I somehow didn't quite forget the pain and maybe the boredom, and I ended up switching to soccer instead. But um, anyway, it, it is a wonderful tool. Uh, what I'd like to do next is something I'll probably never do in the hundreds of years that I'll run this podcast. I want to turn the tables. I want to let you interview me in a moment, just briefly. And here's why. I mean, in the book, you're talking about how people can be successful. And uh, certainly in doing your research, you must have had many instances uh, where you had to drill down with someone and really, you know, figure out what your four principles were going to be. So in my case, you know, I might not be the most successful person in the world, but I don't think I'm the least. Uh, I did incorporate my business on July 5th, 1998. And speaking of success, uh, just a few miles north in California, I was in San Diego at the time. Uh, And two months later, uh, there was another company that also incorporated. They happened to be Google. I I imagine you might have heard of them. I have. My company, Sensory Logic, not quite as famous, but um, let's switch the the tables for a bit and uh, let's see if maybe we can get to uh, a few questions, a few answers for me and ways in which you can build on those to see how they fit or don't fit your your four principles. Great. Okay. So here's a question for you. Do you keep a to-do list of any sort? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Every okay. day. And then as, as you make progress on that to-do list, what, what do you do? Do you cross off things as you go? I do cross them off or I have to reshape the task or it, I realize it has a follow-on component and then it goes on to a new to-do list, which is my daily schedule. Okay. And then as, so do you ever find that your list has a, a definitive point of completion? No, that's mm-hmm. the tough part. That's the that's the cross country running. Um, no, because it's really not a daily schedule. It's a weekly, monthly. I mean, it's all the way out through the year. Um, you know, obviously in the short term, it's a much more complete list. Uh, is it daunting sometimes? Yes. Uh, is there some satisfaction in crossing things off? Yes. What happens? What happens with the items on your list that you've crossed out? Do they uh, is it an electronic calendar so that they are they are literally deleted from your line of sight? 
Uh, I print it out. Um, I'm old-fashioned in that way. Um, one shortcoming of my process, I have to say, and my wife has picked, pointed this out, is I don't celebrate the successes nearly enough. Uh, I just plunge on to the next task uh, far too often. Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask, is where do you focus your attention? Do you focus your attention on the things that are not crossed out or the things that are crossed out as you look at your calendar of events for the day? Um, more on what's not crossed out. Um, but there are big ticket items that, you know, I will reflect on later that, um, you give satisfaction and I, I won't merely push past them, but it, it's a lot on what's ahead. Yeah. So those are th- that, what I've just walked through are, are calls upon two of the principles that we've talked about. First of all, materializing that you literally do keep a list of things that you would like to accomplish. Um, and you seem to do it quite effectively by, um, updating it daily or weekly or monthly as, as your tasks progress. What you've done is quite literally materialize what some people just leave in their head that they leave their to-do list as sort of a, a mental nag for themselves. And, and by, creating or concretely manifesting those goals that you wish to accomplish, what our research has found is that increases the odds that you're actually going to get it done, which is maybe why you find yourself always creating the next one because you've moved so efficiently through the list in the first place. Well, that, now, that's I, kind of you. I, I would say that you know being able to have them on paper means I don't have to clutter my head with them because I, I do like to do some blue sky thinking, maybe even a lot. Um, so that's why it works for me. That's great. And then I ask about what do you do with the items that you've completed? Do you do you look at them or do you look at what's left to come? And you mentioned both, which I think is great because I think especially the process of creating a to-do list by the sheer name of it orients us towards the things that we have to do. But what we can also do is look at the things that we've accomplished. And we don't do that enough, just as you said yourself, that that's not something that you focus on perhaps all too much. And your wife has told you exactly what I would too, which is that we should do that because we can better track our own progress. We can become our own accountant if we are aware of not only what's left to do, but how far we've come. And we find a lot of motivating force by especially at early stages of a goal by looking at what it is that we, how far we have come, what we have accomplished and couple that with what's left to go. And I, I admit in my case, I, I wanted a, an underlying goal that is absolutely huge and looming. That was interesting to me that would never appear on a piece of paper. So in starting sensory logic, I really wanted to challenge the fact that in business uh, I thought emotions were being discounted as to how important they were. And I specifically wanted to challenge market research, which had always depended by and large on people's conscious verbal you know, responses as well as ratings, which I thought was missing the picture of how much we are, are directed by our intuitive responses and how unreliable we are as narrators of our own lives and experiences. That's amazing. And I think that's a great example of framing too. So what you've highlighted for me is that there is something that you're very committed to, the development, the incorporation of this company and unleashing it to the world. Highly committed, highly motivated, and you had made a lot of progress. Now, where do you look for inspiration in those instances? You are looking at what's what does this market space need? What's left untapped? Where What do I have to do to contribute to this space? And for people who are highly committed to a goal, looking at what's to go, what's left to do is where they find more motivation. But for people who may be new 
to a goal or they're just starting out or they maybe don't have that same sense of internal drive or commitment, they actually find motivation by looking back at their past accomplishments. That sort of triggers um, that commitment. Oh, look at what I've accomplished. I must really care about this. I've invested in this. This must be something that I want to see through. So being able to sort of self-diagnose, is this something I'm, I'm personally committed to or maybe externally it was externally asked of me by a boss or by a colleague. Uh, being able to diagnose are we committed or not committed can help us then to better shape where we look if we're trying to determine a source of motivation that would be effective. Sure. And I wouldn't rule out the the impact of fear. I've been in corporate life. I had been in academia, uh, all of that. But in starting a business, it's certainly very different. I remember telling my staff, Think of it this way. We're always going to be on the beach in Omaha Beach. We never get to go to Paris. We're always getting (laughs) shot at. We don't have a lot of resources. We're just going to fight our way up the cliffside. Yeah. Um, I have I have one more thing that I'd like to bring up. So you mentioned also about your to-do list and how you plan. As you wake up in the day, maybe you could be a bit more concrete. As you wake up in the day and you start thinking about that to-do list, are you thinking about today or are you thinking about the week or the month? Oh, probably a split focus, but um, yeah, when I first sit down, it's probably my best energy for the day. So I'll look over the possible tasks and the ones that are going to require the most uh, uh, intellectual depth, intensity, where I really need the quality are the ones I'm going to hit. Uh, late morning, I like to get some fresh air and, and clear my mind a bit. So I'll go for a walk or a bike ride. That's when I can start to say, where am I going in the afternoon? That's where the bigger picture starts to come back in. The morning is is pretty focused. That's great. And I think that's important too, right? Because we do need flexibility in how we approach our scheduling. Every day might throw us a a, a new hurdle or a fire Certainly. that has to get put out. So we can't just stay, can't just plan for the month and then expect that the next 30 days are going to proceed as we planned. So that balance is important. And what we found was that when you compare people who just wake up and only think about today versus people who wake up Think about what they want to accomplish in the week and then sort of plan out uh, a roadmap of sorts of what could they get done today or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. And they develop that sort of tentative roadmap for themselves in advance. They actually found two and a half more hours in their week to work on the long-term projects that they were hoping to accomplish compared to people who uh, every day just stayed focused on the here and now and what they could accomplish today. Yeah, which also gets to be a little grueling at times. Um, I love that you mentioned having to deal with the firestorms and things that might come up. You know, when I was in academia as a professor, you know, I could have my syllabus for the semester and there would always be surprises, but I more or less knew where my next 12, 13 weeks might be headed. Uh, Certainly in the business space, for instance, that I've occupied the last 20 years, just-in-time manufacturing doesn't refer merely to products. It refers to all sorts of things that come through your email uh, and the phone calls and you have to deal with. Um, So before we close this today, I I really wanted to go to a particular chapter of yours, the one about reading the room right, uh, because you have some results related to uh, our ability to read facial expressions and specific emotions. Can you tell listeners a bit about what you found there? Sure. So first of all, I've relied on some other research that was out there that looked at quantifying how good are we at reading other people's emotions. And I think probably most of us think that we're pretty good at it, that we at least get in the ballpark of what somebody's really feeling when we try to intuit that ourselves. And these researchers actually found that for happiness, when people are expressing happiness, 99% of the time, we are right. We, we can identify that correctly. But fear, anger, 
and um, and disgust actually are three emotions that we get wrong fairly often. About half of the time we get it wrong and about half the time we get it right. Now, fear, what is actually somebody's expression of fear is confused for surprise. Anger mm-hmm. is often mistaken for sadness or disgust. And disgust is often mistaken for anger. So though we might think that we're pretty good at being able to read people's emotions, um, evidence suggests that that's not always the case. And well, why might that be? Well, what our research has discovered is that it's because the face is so complex. When I mean, I mean you know, you you have expertise in in reading people's emotions, and there are so many different combinations of muscle movements that can happen on somebody's face, and that can last for just a, a fleeting bit of a second. That most of the time, what we're looking at is not a strong, clear signal of happiness or of fear or of anger. Often what we're seeing is something that's sort of a mixed message of, of, of the expressions that sort of pop out on somebody's face. And that's what we're tasked with making sense of. So there may not necessarily be one right answer. What is this person feeling? They're probably feeling multiple things. What are they expressing? They're probably expressing multiple things at one time. So that leaves a lot of room for uh, individual differences, for you and I to look at the very same face and to see something and see that a very different expression. Yeah, no, one that pops out. I mean, certainly, yes, it's either that there could be multiple expressions or multiple emotions even in an expression or a fairly tight sequence, you know, build of how someone moves from one emotion to another. Uh, Yeah, I've been doing it for 20 years, pretty much week in, week out, lots of people. Uh, I would uh, just, you know, to share my results, I would certainly agree with you that happiness is what people are best at picking up. Uh, We found over time that anger is probably next best, but it's way behind happiness in terms of our ability to pick things up because in general, human beings are not terribly good at this. We'd actually put fear and disgust uh, right at the bottom of the list uh, for people's abilities. I think disgust in part because it's not an emotion that comes to people readily when I ask them what are the core or essential or frequent emotions that we experience. Um, you know, there's only so much emotional literacy out there at times, and I think that's one that kind of slips beneath the radar screen. Most people will will get to anger and fear and happiness and sadness probably, but uh, disgust as an aversive emotion maybe not quite so much true. Anyway, Emily, we've uh, pretty much run out of time. I I do want to thank you very much for having been a guest today on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number seven, Harnessing the Power of Perceptions. Do check out other episodes or my books, lectures, additional activities. Uh, All of that you can find at my website. It's the obligatory three W's, sensorylogic.com, as in your five senses. If you've got a follow-up question for Emily, by all means, go ahead and send it to me, and we'll see if she's kind enough, and I'm sure she will be, to answer it. Uh, you can send those emails to dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you enjoyed the show, uh, by all means, a five-star rating, a review online, uh, any little bit of social media support, always welcome. Finally, i like to conclude every episode with a epigram that fits the particular show and its content. Uh, We've been talking about vision today, so I think I'm going to go to Sherlock Holmes, who said, I have trained myself to notice what I see. I have trained myself to notice what I see. So until next time, be kind and stay safe. Thank you. 